This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is the head brewer and blender for Beachwood Blendery out in Long Beach, California. Harrison McCabe, welcome to the podcast, Harrison. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've been super impressed with the beers you guys have been making over the last couple of years, the Beachwood Blendery, and uh, our blind panel has loved them. So the last uh, issue where we covered uh, wild and sour beers, double 100s for the Beachwood Blendery beer. I'm really excited to talk about your uh, spontaneous process, your brewing process, then, of course, your blending process, fruiting, and everything else. But first, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. G&D is committed to cold, whether you operate a brew pub or large-scale production brewery. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention this podcast and receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D Chiller. Also, stay connected to the heart of craft beer and the revolutionary tastemakers behind every can and bottle. Download the free Tavor app to get highly rated independent craft beer delivered right to your door. Recent featured beers include Within Us from Anchorage, Stargate Nectarine from Black Project, King Sue from Toppling Goliath, Ninja vs. Unicorn from Pipeworks, and Beer to Pay from Side Project. Get $10 in beer money today with code BREWING. All right, Harrison, let's talk a little bit about Beachwood Blendery and uh, how you all have decided to make spontaneous wild and sour beer in... Uh, a decidedly different kind of environment than the where that style of beer has tend, uh, tended to originate. Um, you were in a, a drier, warmer, much warmer kind of climate in Southern California, and yet you all have figured out a way to kind of make the spontaneous process work and uh, also kind of bring along these uh, yeah these wild and sour beers that are uh, you know to my palate some of the best that I've tasted uh, in the country. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you ended up here uh, at Beachwood and then uh, you know how that process has developed for you all. Sure. Um, yeah, I started Beachwood around four years ago. I was working at some other local breweries and uh, Beachwood was looking to like you know crank up production. Um, so I was lucky enough to go there and work in Long Beach at the pub and train under Julian Strago and Ian McCall and Gene Wagner. Um, and while the blendery was sort of starting up, I would be working there part time as well. Um, I mean, there wasn't any you know real seller work sure, to do sure. at that point, so we just help out here and there uh, as Ryan feels the uh, the old head brewer and blender needed help. Um, so getting that training from those guys was honestly like awesome. Um, just the way they think about beer and approach beer really helped shape the way, um, you know, Beachwood Blendery sort of approached making these Lambic inspired beers and, you know, really breaking it down into variables. And that's what beer is about, right? If, you know, it's a bunch of little things that really add up and make something that's really amazing. Um, you know, there's, everyone uses the same ingredients. You can get the same yeast like you can match water, you can do whatever you want, but it's all the tiny little things that, you know, people don't necessarily think about that adds up and really makes like an amazing beer. Let's talk about some of those things. So, you know, that process that Beachwood took in the kind of launching 
the blendery. Yeah, I, I remember uh, receiving some beers from you guys of the the um, a numerical series as you kind of worked through a culture. You kind of moved past that, and now um, you know. At, and I think the idea behind that was to build a culture. You've kind of departed from that now and are brewing spontaneously with beers like Cool Ship Chaos and Funk Yeah. Um, why make that shift from a kind of uh, you know a maintained culture into kind of spontaneous brewing? So yeah, the propagation series, the uh, the numbered beers, um, those went over great with everyone. Uh, real confusing, but um, so <laughs> not the best brand move. It, no, it, no, I think it, it kind of set us back a little bit. I think a lot of people were expecting um, you know lambic inspired beers right off the bat, and we were putting out uh, saison and Berliner Weiss, um, and whereas from a commercial standpoint, it probably wasn't the best move. It really let us um, you know figure out. A couple things here and yeah, there yeah. and really like you know figure out bottle conditioning a little bit um and working with ingredients and f- flavors and cultures and whatnot i think it was really valuable as a learning tool for us while we waited for some of the lambic inspired beer to start coming online um a couple of beers that are some of our favorite um dia de los mangos actually started as one of those propagation beers and as well as umeboshi our um, sea salt and plum beer so, so there's some good things that came out of that so you mean they came in terms of like ingredient selection way that you're fruiting the beer after that you know it's developed or uh well just you know playing with flavors and yeah, yeah. um you know we got to do it with a, a saison that was you know six months old and we're like okay well we know how to use plums now and the salt like we kind of dialed in like yeah, those levels yeah. a little bit um, and those beers evolved from that propagation series. Okay. Um, same with Strawberry Provence, which was an accident. We had um, Herbs de Provence Saison and Strawberry Beer, and, like, you know, neither one was better without the other, and we put them together, we're like, oh, that's, there we, nailed it. Um, and it became Strawberry Provence, which is one of the, like, I guess our core beers we make fairly often and really love to do. Yeah. So then... Why, uh, you know, you were making these propagation series beers and you were also, you know, started brewing spontaneous uh, beer at the same time and were just pushing that back into barrels to, to let it age before you could release it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, we uh, we got our cool ship about a year into the blendery. We'll, we'll really start using it at that point. Um, you know, in the first year of cool ship beer, like, we dumped most of it. it was like, oh, yeah. It wasn't good. Um, How'd you know it wasn't good? What was it? You know, what, what were the flavors that you were tasting that uh, were like, yeah, this is not going to develop? I mean, because you know, when you start making that beer initially, it's all going to taste kind of weird at the start. Oh yeah, totally. Um, well, I, I mean, Enterobacter is the main yeah. culprit and uh, ruined beer. Um, you know, like pretty quickly uh, within a few weeks if it's it's too far gone. We weren't pre-acidifying yeah. at that point. Um, it smells like rotting cabbage and like. It's it has a bitterness to it as well. Mm. Um, in large amounts, that character is not desirable. But in yeah. small amounts, it adds a little bit of earthy sure. nuance and texture. Um, so I mean, we we lost a third of our spontaneous beer for. I don't know, two, two and a half years, I would say. Yikes! Now that enteric kind of phase, you know, for spontaneous beer, you know, from the studies that I've read, you know, it is actually a rather important part of the flavor development. Um, what's, I guess what's not happening is other organisms out competing and, and then taking over from that phase and then uh, just letting it uh, linger and grow. Right. I mean, so one cool thing, you know, if you pre-acidify, 
the Enterobacter is pretty much held at bay. You're not really going to get much of it. Um, but we can almost, we can, so we learn how to mimic spontaneous fermentation with pitching culture. Like we can make Enterobacter tasting beer if we want. Yeah. Um, you know, we wanted to understand all the variables and how to like achieve certain things in making all kinds of sour beer. Like we can make American style sour beer. Like we can adjust a few variables with our culture and like, it'll taste very different. Uh, it won't resemble what we usually put out. Um, we can make enterobacter. We can, we can do a lot of cool things just based on what we've learned and observed, um, over time. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about some of those levers that, you know, that you pull, but let's talk about pre-acidification, you know, first. Um, and this is one that I think is a kind of interesting process for spontaneous brewing to kind of, uh, you know, get it down to a kind of pH level where some of the less desirable, um, you know, bacteria can't grow and flourish in that. And it's something I know that, uh, you know, uh, the referend does up in New Jersey. There are a number of brewers that are now doing it this way. Um, talk to me a little bit about the way that you pre-acidify, what your goals are on that and, uh, how you do it. Um, I mean, we just target around 4.6 to 4.8 and yeah. l- lactic acid in our whirlpool. And <laughs> okay. that's pretty much how we get there. Um, we, don't do it for most of our beer. It's pretty much only beer that sees the cool ship. Um, or we we're doing some fermentations now with just fruit. Um, and we treat that sort of like cool ship where, where it doesn't get cooled in the cool ship, but we'll pre-acidify it just to, you know, keep some of those off flavors from popping up. Um, and we're having pretty good results with that. So just straight lactic acid in the, in the boil. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not that much. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And most of the time our pHs are just normal, you know, yeah. standard 5.3-ish pH for wort. You're not trying to do it the, uh, you know, the, the uh, acid malt kind of way to, you know, claim that there's no additional uh, anything added to the beer? Uh, you can do it if you want. Yeah. <laughs> In an environment like, uh, you know, Los Angeles or uh, L.A. metro area, um, you know, are you then able to, uh, you know, how, how is there a culture um, you know, and positive kind of culture that creates the kind of flavors you want in uh, the environment that you've now built a, you know, a cool ship brewery in. Um, have, how have you developed that kind of space or what kind of, um, you know, environmental controls do you put in place to, again, kind of make sure that in this very warm environment, you're getting the, the kinds of flavors through these cool ship beers that you want to get? Um, so from the beginning, the, build, the building was built out with this in mind. Um, we have humidity, temperature control. Um, you know, that's like, those are some crazy things that we can do. Like we can cool ship kind of whenever we want um, yeah. and make a decent product at this point. Um, but the idea from the beginning was to create our own environment where, you know, cool ship beer would thrive. So cool ship beer, it's, it's stuff from the air, but it's also from what's around it. You know, it's in like the sense of like place, I guess. Sure. Um, sure. and over time we're seeing the spontaneous beer become better and better. And that's probably just because, you know, it's building up in the blendery itself. It's on the barrels the walls. Like it's, it's a round kind of thing. We've also like stopped sanitizing as heavily. Yeah. Um, we sanitize our tanks, but like parts if we sanitize them, we're using just like Santa clean, which is kind of a final rinse sanitizer. It's not like parasitic or anything like that. Um, and that kind of works against what we're trying to do. Um, you want to be somewhat clean, I guess. <laughs> Clean-ish. Um, yeah. Yeah. So over time, we've seen the environment get more conducive to those spontaneous fermentations. Uh, we've done cool shit beer 
throughout the year at different temperatures to see what it does. Um, and some of the challenges of that too is, you know, if we do it in a warmer month, um, it acidifies a lot quicker and that beer is really good at one year, but it's not really going to go past that. Like okay. you have to use it at that point. So learning how to make beer that can sit for a couple of years is, is also kind of a, a challenge, I suppose, at this point. Come back to that, but let's talk a little more about the environment. You know, you, I like what you're saying in terms of building that culture up in the, in the brewery. And I mean, we see it, uh, you know, is up at uh, area two. Phil Markowski of Two Roads, you know, has built a new cool ship with a gorgeous ceiling, you know, angled in so that uh, that condensation will gather on the ceiling and also potentially drip back into the cool ship, you know, pushing that in. And, uh, you know, Crooked Stave is doing a lot of beers through their cool ship. Same kind of thing, built a, uh, a kind of pine ceiling right above the open cool ship. Um, you know, it's a, and if you go look at it, you know, they, you, know you can find these kind of caramelized, uh, almost like sugar droplets uh, hanging off of the roof. Um, but it provides an environment for that, those kinds of, uh, you know, bugs and the stuff that you want to, to kind of live in. How, uh, how have you guys kind of, you know, built an environment around that? Uh, we used to have lattice above the cool ship. Um, it got moldy pretty quick and we decided to pull it down. Yeah. Uh, we just, I'm sure it, it might help. Uh, I don't know if anyone's collected the drippings and had it, you know, tested for right, microorganisms. Right. Maybe it's a thing. Um, we've got uh, the way our building's cooled is we have fans in opposite sides of the buildings blowing in sort of a, a vortex. Um, so you can see when we cool ship, the steam is going like towards the wall, towards the cool ship, oh, like from the barrels, basically. Um, so the direction of the air is going to the cool ship, okay. which is pretty cool. Uh, we also have air intake from outside. Um, we've stopped using that. Um, what we felt like was happening was it was actually pushing too much air in and pushing things away from the cool ship from the barrel room. Okay. So we've done experiments where, with it on and off, um, but I think we've settled on off. I mean, there's air coming in just through like, convection, but um, we don't blow air in from outside anymore. It kind of... Uh, uh challenges that romantic notion of of culture floating in over the in the evening uh, uh, breeze <laughs> yeah, into the cool I, ship but i also don't think that that you know that kind of romantic idea was ever really real and uh, even in lamb actual lambda I, I think a lot of people get the impression that you know it's only the air and like whatever's in the air really ferments the beer but it, there's really things built up in the brewery and poses and barrels and parts and um you know those breweries don't necessarily have crazy sanitation practices, you know, like things build up over time and things are kind of active all the time too during the brewing season. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, say it's all from the air, but you know, <laughs> so what temperature do you generally try to keep the, uh, the, the cool ship and the, the general area with your barrels at? So we create artificial seasons in our, in our barrel house. Okay. Um, we're in California. It's 68 every day and sunny. Um, it gets warm a few months a year. September is actually usually the warmest month for us. Um, and right now we're at 66, which is our kind of like temperature we've settled on over the last few years where we don't get as much like early lactic acid production, um, which has like a sort of lemony kind of character. It's really not what we want in the beer. Um, and that's our high temp for right now. And then as we get closer to December and January, we'll slowly crank down to about 48 degrees. Um, we get usually around 50, just depending on the outside. Our building's not super insulated. 
so it's kind of hard to keep it real cool for a mm-hmm. long time. But I've seen it get around 50 degrees for the most part. Um, let's talk about that uh, development of lactic acid and time. You know, you mentioned when it's warmer that uh, some of the beers develop acidity faster, but then don't develop some of the like, funk and complexity you know that you might want over that kind of extended aging. Um, what have you found makes for that most interesting beer? And what do you you know what are those levers that you pull in order to kind of you know what are you looking for at various stages? As the beer develops, um, you know how much acid are you looking over, you know, over specific amounts of time, and uh, you know, and and how do you again kind of tweak uh, the variables in order to achieve those things? Sure. So I guess the variables for acid production, hops, temperature, um, those are, and you know, those are the main two, I guess. Yeah. Um, so most of our beers hop pretty heavily. We're using over half a pound per barrel. Like I don't know, 0.7 pounds per barrel, I guess, mostly. Um, if we want age tops or fresh? all age tops, okay. so they're noble varieties that were aged as whole leaf and then pelletized. Okay. For us, um, yeah, we can go on to hops later. Uh, cool. That's kind of something we're looking into right now because finding good bad hops is is a is an odd question to ask some of these <laughs> good hop, bad hops. Yeah. Ask these hop growers. They're <laughs> like, no one's ever asked us that before. Um, but yeah, so hops and temperature, um, and also pitching rates, and cleaning your barrels and those are things that um, adjust acid. So we used to make acid beer. We'd hop it half pound per barrel or, barrel or lower. And just from that alone, we would see like a lot different profile in lactic acid production. And what happens is the beer acidifies so quickly that, you know, there's a lot of flavors and nuance that you kind of strip out of the beer over time with that. And also it kind of like tends to go acetic faster because that environment's more conducive for acetobacter once the pH starts dropping yeah. really fast. Um, and temperature, we generally knock out at 65. Um, if we start knocking out above 67 or so, we start seeing that kind of lactic acid production as well, even though we hop like fairly high. So there's kind of that sweet spot of the hop rate and the temperature um, to kind of like dial in that acid profile so when what temperature you put it into the cool ship at 204 degrees okay and you pull it out of the cool ship then at 66 it's like 62 out of a cool ship okay um only 10 percent of our production is spontaneous beer right now okay um i don't know if we package that much but as like a production of wort right now it's about 10 percent okay um and actually the first batch of every year will go into the cool ship put it in barrels and pitch culture into it um, there is a flavor from the cool ship that you do not get from even p- pitching really low. Um, it, it's hard to describe it. It just it's a little oxidized, a little earthier, um, but it, it's unique to the cool ship. So we like to have some of that like hybrid beer around, and we generally blend some of that into funky yeah, because we want some of that character from the cool ship. Um, so you, you're pulling these levers. You, you're you're putting a fairly significant amount of hops in there to kind of make sure that those lactic acid bacteria are working slowly. Um, what do you you know do to kind of you know push that kind of that funky element up? I mean, I think that's one of the things that differentiates the sour beer that you and other top 
producers in the United States are making from some of the more general average American wild ales that, you know, that have a more one dimensional kind of, you know, component to them. There's this minerally funk, you know, that you all are able to kind of capture, you know, that uh, that feel that just adds this kind of depth. And uh, it's almost like, you know, salt that it kind of brings out some of that acidity and highlights some of that fruit makes everything a little brighter and a little, uh, you know, uh, you know, more bold and interesting. Uh, how do you, you know, where does that come from and, and how do you uh, favor that through your process? So from the beginning, we, we started with tons of Belgian origin cultures and yeasts from labs, bottles and whatever. Um, at one point we had 20 carboys, we had incubators, like we had a, cause the building is sometimes really cold. So we'd want the, the yeast, you know, at a little bit warmer temperature. Yeah. Um, and we'd pitched all these cultures into barrels at different amounts, um, different variations. And then over time we would just, you know, taste barrels and be like, oh, this one's in the right direction. And we'd actually sacrifice that whole barrel, like the, literally the best barrel we had into a fresh batch of wort. And then that would go into barrels. And maybe some of them we pitched some more stuff or whatever. And just through selection over time, we kind of guided the culture in the funky direction. Um, it took about two and a half to three years to kind of get that consistency with yeah. that. Um, but a lot of it was just through like selection of the right barrels and pushing those f- to like further the program on. Um, at this point, you know, when we blend Funkia yeah and our new uh, three-year spontaneous goose-inspired beer, we're using those, the beer itself with a little wort and using that to like, as our culture going forward. So that's kind of our, the way we've gotten to where we are with that. Let's talk a little bit more about that uh, in a second. But first, craft the perfect pour with superior fruit from the perfect puree. Picked to the peak of ripeness, the fruit is pureed and packed for optimal fresh flavor and color. But don't just take their word for it. Experience flavor firsthand by curating your own complimentary sample box at perfectpuree.com slash beer. That's perfect, P-U-R-E-E dot com forward slash beer. Samples are complimentary for brewing professionals only. And balancing barley and hops is your expertise, and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION, that's 855-692-5274, or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. So fostering that kind of funk in the, uh, you know, in the brew house, you mentioned that you are kind of, you know, moving some of the stuff you like into some of the places, you know, into some of the other beers in order to kind of keep some of that character going. Um, you know, how does that jive with the whole spontaneous process? Obviously spontaneous is only 10% of what you're brewing. Um, you know, but how through that spontaneous process are you picking up some of the same things? So we're trying to mimic the flavors of spontaneous fermentation. So when we're guiding the culture, we've kind of mimic the flavors of Belgian spontaneous spontaneous beer. So, you know, with that in mind and our idea of Lambic and Goose, we guided our culture in that direction. So the idea is that we're pitching to mimic those flavor profiles. So I think the like the similarities are going to be strong just because of that. Um, I will say the Cool Shit beer tastes different than the pitched beer always. Yeah. Um, it's not as fruity, I would say. Um, 
But I mean, they both have some more funky character. Um, some of that comes from ingredients. So I, we found that unmalted wheat actually promotes the funky kind of character. So that's really important. The aged hops, again, are also like really important in part of that. Um, but a lot of it's fermentation and, you know, in time. Uh, I think, you know, the mash profile or whatever helps a little bit with some of that character. Um, we're mashing pretty hot, um, like 156, 158, no yeah. like no rest time and a 193 Fahrenheit sparge. So we want these fermentations to last a year. So you don't really want the the yeast to dominate or the bacteria. And that's also, right. you know, hand in hand with our temperature, our seasons that we create in the blendery. Right. So we want warmer and cooler fluctuations through that year. Um, you know, you got to look at the fermentation over a long period of time versus a really short period of time. Um, you know, if your fermentation finishes in two months, your beer is going to go acetic eventually because nothing's really active at that point it goes kind of dormant how do you carry that kind of that funk character that you're looking for that's belgian inspired through that that spontaneous beer you know does it is it picking it up just you know from the brew house itself or uh you know is there some more intentional way that that uh that those, those flavors are getting into the beer i mean we make honest spontaneous beer like the barrels all of our barrels yeah. every brew no matter spontaneous or not are steamed and power washed with hot water, like yeah. we've put beer, like wort into the barrels to see like, you know, is there stuff still in the barrels? And we've never made anything good doing that. It never gets sour. It's, it just tastes weird and it's probably not good to drink. Um, <laughs> so a lot of it's through blending. Honestly, we make funk. Yeah, which is a blend of spontaneous, not spontaneous cultured beer. We also made our new beer. It's called, we are who we pretend to be. And it's a three year spontaneous beer. So, you can try our cultured version versus the spontaneous version. We made two, like three year inspired beers. We tasted hundreds of barrels to select maybe I think 20 total, like nine for one beer and like, you know, 11 for the other one. Um, you know, a, a lot of that character comes through blending as well. Like not every barrel is crazy funky or right. It's hardly, it never happens really where you get that one barrel that's, it's got everything, you know, it's perfectly balanced with acidity and funk and, you know, texture, um, you know, a lot of, you know, those flavors are through blending and we kind of, it's interesting because the, the actual blendage of both of these beers happen to work out to be the same. So I don't know if that was just, you know, we have this idea of what a three year beer is supposed to taste like, and we're blending to that. So these beers have like similar acid profiles and characters. They're just a little bit different from each other. So I think it's really cool that, you know, a consumer could try, you know, this one's, it's method traditional because we wanted to learn that mashing that way doesn't, you know, doesn't make those flavors. Like, you know, that's why it was important to us to do that. And that beer just happens to fall on the method traditional thing. So sure, we'll put it on the label. And then Funk Yeah, it's made the way we think we can make the best beer possible. Um, so I don't know. That's actually a cool thought. So you, you are adhering with some of the beers coming out of the blendery to method traditional. But then you're also making beers that don't adhere to that because there is a you're developing another process that's different than that method traditional process that helps you make beer that tastes you know a little bit closer to what your you know flavor profile is. Um, you know I think philosophically that's a 
you know, interesting standpoint to, you know, to take. And the other brewers like Trevor Degard kind of take the same kind of thing. I'm not going to adhere to some, you know, list of the way that I have to make it in order to put a logo on a label. I'm going to make spontaneous beer the way that I need to make it here in my local environment in a way that makes the best beer, the beer that tastes the way I want it to taste. I think those are certainly fair concerns and it's, you know, there's nothing more American than trying to do it our own way. Um, you know, taking an inspiration from somewhere else, but also, you know, figuring out the processes that work and the same processes that work, you know, in the heat of Texas or in the warmth of Southern California, you know, may not work in the damp um, coast of Oregon mm-hmm. or, you know, and they may be different than the, than what works in the, the, you know, kind of humid Sun Valley. So, um, you know, what in that sense, uh, you know, is there a future for method traditional for you or are you now kind of moving past and, and you know that you've learned what you need to learn from that going in, in your own direction? Uh, I, I don't think it's not necessarily my decision to make alone. I want to, I, I want to sure. talk to everybody at the company <laughs> and be like, Hey, like, I don't think this is the best way for us to make spontaneous beer. Um, I'm probably going to move away from it. Um, I think, I mean, the next couple of years of beers will might still fall under that, designation um, because you made them that way and put we've them in made the them that, that way for yeah. the last yeah. four years but it was really important you know to to make things the way they've been traditionally made and uh, explore those variables again and make sure that we know what it does before we decide we don't need to do it so you learned then that it's not the mash that uh, that creates the funk that it is that fermentation kind of process what else did you learn from from their method traditional uh, experiments i mean it's a little bit of both um the mash it does make a difference, but I think you can achieve thick dextrinous uh, mash with, um, you know, lots of hard to ferment stuff that kind of stretches out that fermentation process. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit system dependent, right? So for us, we're seeing that the spontaneous beer typically comes out a bit thinner than our cultured beer that's mashed differently. And we actually prefer that sort of texture and body in those beers versus some of our spontaneous stuff, which is a tiny bit thinner occasionally. What's the, what's the difference in the, in the mash process that you guys, you know, prefer now for your own uh, non-method traditional stuff? So our preferred mash is just a single infusion, real hot, 158. We, okay. re- we recirc for 10 minutes and then start sparging and running off, um, you know, and that's, that's it. I mean, uh, we get like a really long fermentation that way. Hmm. Um, the beer, you know, after four months, even it's not even like half attenuated. Like we're also pitching really low, which is we found really important too. And, you know, when you pitch higher, like you just kind of ferment all the sugar out and just some things go dormant. It's just, it's just not like an active thing for a long time. And that's where the nuance comes in. So, you know, for these beers that you're pitching and you say you pitch low, you know, are you, I mean, it's a mi- these are mixed cultures, I assume. And so how are you, I mean, cell counting, <laughs> it doesn't happen the same kind of way that you would, uh, you know, kind of, you know, count uh, uh, in a kind of monoculture, single culture you know, yeast. How do you know, uh, you know, uh, and measure these kinds of volumes? Um, you know, do you have a general, just you're just doing it out, you know, out of experience? I know if we push this kind of volume or weight into it, that it's, you know, this is what's going to be low or this is what's going to be high. Yeah. Um, you know, in the beginning we tried different amounts all the time and, yeah. um, now we've kind of settled on like two liters of carboy culture per <laughs> oak barrel. And okay. that's, that's the sweet spot, for, but yeah. it also depends yeah. how active it is. So if we topped it, like say we brewed last week and we topped it up and it's actively fermenting and I'll be like, okay, well I need a liter. 
because it's already kind of going. Yeah. Um, if we pitch real low, that's when we can get the entero we can get the enterobacter um, character, and we do it occasionally because I like to have a little bit of it around. Um, not everyone likes that flavor, but they don't know if I blend it in because it's so low, and I don't know. It just adds a cool complexity sometimes. How do you maintain that culture? You know, I mean, that's certainly a challenge. These things can drift over time that, uh, you know, they're living organisms and they, they compete and they can outcompete and, uh, and move in directions that may not be ideal. It's hard to kind of bank these mixed cultures and then grow them up in some sort of way, you know, off of banked, uh, you know, because stuff grows at different rates, you mm-hmm. know. So how, how over the long, I mean, you're hinging an entire, you know, sour, wild, funky beer program on these flavors that you've worked very hard to develop. How do you keep that going? Uh, through selection. So, I mean, this, the simple answer is, uh, you know, we brew a few times a month and we'll top it with generally higher hopped wort because um, we don't want it going acidic. Um, bacteria can easily kind of overpower everything else and then just bad things happen. You'll get nail polish and vinegar. Yeah. And, um, you know, yeah, things do change, but through blending we can select all of like the best barrels in our entire barrel house and like put them together and be like, that's awesome. Let's make our beer taste like that. So we use that to like push the culture along again, you know, just so through selection. So you almost use like the good results to, to reset from time to time and make sure that, you know, that is, um, so then put back into that carboy and out compete some of the older other stuff, um, because it's fresher and, uh, and more lively. Yeah. I mean, we, our, our carboy shattered a few months ago and I was like, cool. And I just walked over to a few barrels, tasted them, like, tastes good. And then I started a new one and, you know, smelling the barrels and, like, in a month in, I'm like, cool, that's that's awesome. That's where we want to be. So it lives in the barrel house and we, you know, pick the best barrel. Like, for a while it was kind of hard because we didn't have that much beer and we're taking literally the best beer we have and just putting it in a wort and, yeah. like, hoping that it works out for us. And uh, so... I think it has. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about hops. You know, you kind of touched on it before, but, uh, um, and you know, you're using aged hops, aged as whole flour and then pelletized and then, uh, uh, used in the boil and that way. Um, what have you found in sourcing hops that you like and that you don't like? And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's lots of talk among brewers that a lot of that kind of fun, you know, kind of cheesy character out of what we you know, get in the, uh, you know, in this kind of wild, sour and spontaneous beer is actually hops derived in some sort of way. Uh, how do you select and use hops, you know, in order to highlight that kind of character that you're looking for? So I would never describe the hops that we're using as cheesy. I think they're beyond that at this point. Beyond cheesy. Beyond cheesy. Okay. So it mostly smells like dead grass and, and like a thousand wet puppies. Okay. That's how I would describe it. A thousand wet puppies. A thousand wet puppies. Uh, especially when we cool ship the whole building, like it stings. It's like a puppy party in there. Um, uh, so we're kind of coming up on, you know, four years and we bought a huge lot of all the aged hops from one uh, supplier because we didn't know if they were going to be made again. And we're like, this is kind of important for our program. Yeah. Um, so now we're having to find new age, t- well, new old hops. Uh, and in, we're starting to do a lot more analytical things that we haven't done on hops before. So we're testing our ward IBUs. We're going to test the final beer IBUs and kind of see like, is it an IBU thing that keeps acidity at bay? Or is it just sort of the other things that are in hops um, from a volume standpoint? I, and then what, what's happening to these hops? So I think, 
we're trying to tag along on the hazy IPA hop research thing where the sure, biotransformation sure. and we're going to be like, hey, you know, we have these age tops. Like what happens to these compounds through fermentation? Um, you know, I think that's like a really valuable thing to learn and know about. And it doesn't seem like people have answers yet. Um, but anyway, getting back to like the funky character, it I mean, it does have an earthy, funky thing going on. It's not necessarily the sole reason the beer is funky, but it doesn't hurt. It definitely needs to it needs to be in there and it needs to be old noble hops. I think you can make really cool beer with, you know, low alpha American hops. Um, and you'll get different characters. You won't it won't taste like it came from Belgium, but it might be really good. Yeah. So I think that's something we'd like to try. Um you know, especially with you know the cryo hops now they pull out of the oils and then they're like leftover matter i'm like that's kind of perfect actually so those might work out really well if we get to age those um i mean we want to try and and learn as much as we can and try things so, so you've certainly learned by using some different hops what did you learn what kind of flavors do you get out of those not noble hops or not aged hops um you know if the hop is higher than like three and a half percent when it's fresh it's not gonna work as good it just I don't know, there's something about it. It's just way too bitter, and it it just it doesn't come across right. It's just it's too much. Um, what was the rest of the question? <laughs> <laughs> Are there any flavor contributions from non non noble hops that uh, that you've learned from over the, your test processes? Um, just I mean, we've tried some American hops, like we've tried old old Cascade, and they're just like crazy citrus peel. Um, but again, just way too bitter and like okay. almost almost unusable you, you we'd have to blend them out like a lot to, yeah. to make it palatable even um, so you're using a lot of hops but you're using very low alpha hops you know to do that um yeah it, it yeah and you mentioned you're, you're studying the ibu contribution what what is your typical ibu goal you know for these hops um although i guess that's hard to say really when you're talking about aged hops where there's been a significant amount of degradation to the hops. So we just tested the new lot. We've tested the, all the lots of hops we have right yeah. now. And the the new hops, they tested like 1.2 alpha or something. We're getting like 60 IBUs at half a pound per barrel. And we're like, doesn't make sense. Um, so there's like, I guess the, I mean, I don't know all the science behind it yet. I don't want to like make statements. Sure, but, uh, sure. You know, things become more soluble as they get older and oxidize. So you can get more out of like alpha acids and beta acids out of the hops when they get older kind of thing. Mm. Um, we're not quite sure yet. I mean, that's yeah. something we're looking into. Um, but it like increases extraction efficiency or yeah, something. I yeah. I mean, as much as we want to like science the beer, it's at the end of the day, it's sensory based. So yeah, I get these yeah. new hops in and I, I'm going by smell and just a, a feel of what's sure, been working sure. for us. Um, and the, the noble hop just has that right, character um you know maybe they're not as old and they're a little green looking still not brown and red um like cool i want those i'll age them out a little bit more and yeah. it'll, it'll be fun do you guys age again at your own facility or are you uh buying everything pre-aged i mean it's pre-aged and we're aging it further yeah uh, we just cut all the bags open and they're just hanging out in the the attic next to the glycol chiller it's like 120 <laughs> degrees in there nice um nice. we used to have an incubator that we'd had it like a heater in, and yeah. like we'd cook them literally. Yeah. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about blending. I mean, obviously Beachwood Blendery, it's in the name and you were mentioning earlier that a lot of the character character that you're looking for, you know, doesn't come in that single barrel that, 
you what you are achieving is because you know it's coming from that kind of blend of multiple barrels as you all are tasting through barrels and trying to kind of in your mind build a blend what are some of those kind of key difference differentiating flavors that you taste you know do you use a kind of shorthand to describe the you know the the flavors in specific barrels um you know how do you uh, you know it's the hardest thing in the world to kind of articulate in words what you're tasting in these kinds of things but uh do you have a system for doing that to try to identify you know how much what these different things are tasting like what you think they might add to a blend and then uh you know and what kind of quantities you want to blend the different barrels of these different characters sure um you know blends like honestly the funnest part of the job it's it's awesome like you never every time it's going to be different um you really n- never know what you're going to taste or find right. um so our blending process i mean typically we're blending 40 barrels at a time or tasting through 40 barrels um we'll pull samples and lay them across a table and we'll go through each one and basically we just decide do we like it or do we not like it or if it's not ready or something. So if it's good and we like it, we pull it forward and we go through all the barrels and just pull all the ones forward that we like. And then from there, we kind of build the blend. Um, I do have a shorthand. So first it's like a like, dislike kind of binary, yep. you know, and then you kind of hone down from there. Right. What happens to the barrels you don't like? It, it really depends. Fruit beer, right? <laughs> so, we put really... <laughs> just kidding. We make a lot of fruit beer and honestly, we put some of the best barrels in a fruit beer and like all right it's it hurts a little bit but we're like okay it's gonna be the best fruit beer ever um it happens every month we're yeah. just like and the thing so anyway we'll get to that yeah. but uh the shorthand really is um acid and character and texture so i think texture is kind of the next level of things that we think about when we're blending mm. um it makes a big difference in the beer and how things come across um but texture most, in what way and tannins and bitterness, um, body of the beer, um, you know, different acids have different mouthfeels. So, you know, layering those acids in, in certain amounts really, it helps build the beer in a way, um, where the acid hits all the parts of the tongue. It carries through the flavor. Um, I think it's a little bit overlooked maybe in some blends. Hmm. Um, you do need acetic acid in, in low amounts to sort of have the carry through and the lactic acid, um, you know, it'll carry on the front of the tongue more. Um, it's just, it's a cool thing. Yeah. Um, but basically we're, you know, we check acid level. It's medium, medium plus, um, a tiny bit of acetic acid. We mark it as acetic and, and then we'll move on. Is it funky? Is it clean? Is it fruity? Um, there's a lot of shorthand. Um, and it's fun cause you know, we taste these 40 barrels and those notes are only worth it for like they're only they only work for a month and then yeah. you really need to retaste everything because huh. things change that fast yeah um we've set barrels aside we're like oh this can be perfect for this blend in a month and a half we go back and we're like it's not right at all you know it's kind of like getting a different, different set of paints every time and you know figuring out how to paint that picture well, at least you have a lot of pigments to work with yeah. um and so you know what yeah how often do you taste those barrels how often are you uh, you know kind of writing those notes down um, you know, or, and do you, uh, you know, are, are you using that kind of tasting to measure where each barrel is and some timing on when those things need to happen too? No, I, we look at, you know, our, we have barrel software and we look, okay, these barrels are a year old time to taste them. Um, and we'll go through all the barrels that are that age. And, yeah. um, typically we, we know what beers we need to make and we'll kind of blend towards those. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, most of the blends for us, um, it's seven, six oak barrels for a single batch and 10 or 11 for a, like a double batch. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have so much barrel stock at this point, like we can make awesome blends pretty consistently. It, it's not that often where we fail at a blend, um, but it does happen where you just don't have the right pieces and you have to go back and, you know, check old notes and look for other barrels and be like, okay, I don't have that really funky barrel that I need for this beer. Um, and, or if it's a lot of barrels, you have to come back another day and, and do it. So funky, for example, it's, it's four days of blending to, to make that beer. Um, it's a ton of barrels to taste through and yeah. kind of sort down to the best, you know, 12 or whatever. Um, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you keep your palate fresh? I mean, tasting that many barrels, it's really easy to, um, you know, to have things, you know, to wreck your own palate and not be able to, you know, have, have that kind of sensitivity to it. It's also, you know, are you, is it a single person process or uh, is it a more collaborative process for you all? Um, it's definitely collaborative. Um, if it's like a massive tasting, like for Funkia, yeah, um, the first day we literally, we go through 40 to 60 barrels and it's just like good, not ready or not right for this beer. Um, and then we keep narrowing it down. And then the last day we bring in, um, people from our brewery that have awesome palates and know the beer really well. And we'll sit down and, and taste through everything and sort of blend that way. Um, and the spontaneous is like a whole nother set of, it's like a whole nother brewery within a brewery. It's the barrels taste nothing really like the cultured beer. Like you taste flavors. You're like, I have no idea how or why this is, um, sometimes good sometimes it's foul and just you're just like i don't know what would happen with this um but it, it's definitely a challenge to do that and then also you know when you start blending what's your success to failure ratio on some of on the spontaneous beer barrels uh i say we lose like a third every year a third okay yeah which is i mean as a total production it's not really that bad yeah. like on our cultured side we lose like a one batch out of 50 a year maybe yeah it's like pretty good occasionally it's sure like sure a barrel gets lost or forgotten about and it goes yeah. acetic or like eh, it's, it's fine yeah we we dumped beer i mean we dumped like 30 barrels this year just older saison things like that it's just like we have nothing to use this with or like it's not worth blending it out yeah um it's not what we're trying to make anymore and just it's not right yeah. let's talk a little bit about fruit process uh you know uh we joked about it before with the uh you know but some of the uh, kind of flavor combinations and fruiting processes, uh, um, you do make some pretty significantly fruited beers. Uh, talk to me a, bit, a little bit about what you've learned through your research on uh, what creates successful fruited beers methods and uh, uh, selecting fruit, et cetera. Sure. I mean, uh, don't use fruit to cover up things. That's, okay. that's number one. Um, you know, make a good beer first and then put it on fruit. Um, yeah. I mean, most of the beer we blend, it's, we don't blend different for different fruits. Typically, um, we we're looking for funky. We're looking for the right acid profile, um, like moderate, you know, maybe acetic acid. We don't put it in a lot of the one year beer if we don't have to, it just, it doesn't feel right sometimes. What doesn't, what's not right about it? It's just, it's just too much acid. Um, it, it like, and especially with the fruit, it just it comes across as just like harsh, I guess. It's just, it's not pleasant in our opinion. Um, 
Is it just like fruit acidity on top of beer yeah, acidity just, that just creates too much acidity overall? Yeah, I, I would say most fruit, you know, it, it adds some acid, and, but it's not usually like, oh, this beer is going to be way too sour because of this fruit, um, with the exception of uh, apricots and passion fruit, which are always really acidic, like more acidic than you think they would be. Um, so apricot's the one where we definitely blend really, really low acid beer in. Okay. Um, but everything else, it's pretty much blended the same way. We got some funk. We got a little bit of lactic acid, some nice, like, aged hop character. Um, and most of our fruit is whole fruit. Um, the only puree we really use is passion fruit. Um, just It's accessible, and it's really, really good, even though it's, like, it's like a concentrated version. Um, so we do whole fruit. We go into purged oak barrels that have just been cleaned, uh, fruit it, purge it again. You're fruiting in oak? Yep. Okay. Every, everything is fruited in oak and fermented in oak. Um, Why that? Why not in steel tanks? Well, now that you ask. Um, so again, it comes down to blending. So we have three opportunities to blend these beers when we fruit them. So we make an initial blend, um, and we leave about a foot and a half of headspace in all these barrels and ferment all the fruit for a month, and we'll taste through all of them again. And we can decide again what barrels to top them with. So we can make another set of adjustments on acid and funk and character. And then after another month of re-fermentation, we'll go through and taste all of them again and we can blend it back. Or um, if we need to add more fruit, I mean, we can um, and just refruit it, which doesn't really happen. We kind of fruit on the lower level, I would say, for a lot of things. Like we still want it to taste like beer. Um, but there's a huge advantage to be able to adjust those blends that many times. Um, I think it's, it's a little bit more work and time consuming, but I think the results are so much better. Why do it that way and not just after that barrel is done fruiting, blend with some a barrel that's been done a completely different way, you know, to, to kind of go halvesies on that. I mean, I mean, it just seems like that's a pretty work intensive process to be pouring more beer into a, a already fruited barrel. Uh, it is a lot of work. Um, but I, I wouldn't do it any other way, to be honest with you. Like okay. throwing all of the fruit and beer. And you're not worried about like additional oxygen pickup or some of the other stuff that happens every time you open those things up. No, I mean we, we purge heavily before okay. before fruiting and after. The fruit okay. can trap oxygen in the barrel, so yeah, yeah. Um, we we do the purge before and after, and you know a month into that, like the headspace is pretty much all CO2. Yeah. You put your nose in there, it burns. Um, so we don't really worry about too much oxygen pickup. We've never seen like a barrel go like super acetic super fast and also you know acetobacter is like a temperature thing we don't mm. we don't get warm enough to really favor that in our beer um you know after a year of fermentation like acetobacter is pretty dormant at that point for us we have to find acetic acid most of the time it's not like hmm. around all that often what do you mean find acetic acid like literally like taste through a bunch of barrels and f like maybe just find the one that has some acetic yeah. characters so that you can add it to a blend. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we only use the ones that have just a hint of acetic acid, like just bo above threshold. Um, anything more than that, we just dump it and just, it's too much and not worth it. So you, uh, doing any kind of like punch down or, uh, you know, are you just cutting up whole fruit or getting it already pre-cut? What's that look like? Uh, we don't cut anything. We just shove it in the just barrel, shove whole fruit in the barrel. Yeah. Oh. We, we just threw the bunghole. You don't like, if you cut it up skin on or yeah pits and everything hmm. pits in two months it's not really going to add a ton of flavor yeah um if you longer contact you'll get a little bit of like that nutty kind of thing um it's not something that we necessarily want in the beer but some people like it yeah um yeah we just shove it in i mean 
it's actually easier to separate the beer from the fruit at that point. We just push everything into a fermenter and use thyme and the cone and dump it out. And we, our yields are really good. Like, there's really no beer left in the barrel at that point. Hmm. Um, it's working well for us, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. an interesting one. Yeah. Um, what other, uh, any, anything new on the horizon that you're really excited about? Uh, you, know, um, you know, new processes, new beers. Uh, you know, what's, uh, what's the stuff that's getting you excited these days that you're, uh, that you're embarking in? Well, uh, we're actually putting out our um, collab beer we did with Shaxbury Ciders today. Um, they sent us culture from their wild apple program, and you know, uh, we fermented our wort with it. So it's kind of this really interesting hybrid fermentation beer, but uh, it, it tastes like a back cider. It's, it doesn't have any of the, it's hard to describe it. Like the texture is different. The flavors are different from our beer, like drastically. Um, you know, it came, it's just a really cool beer. It came out really awesome. Like it's very different from anything we've ever made. And I think in terms of understanding like these fermentations and our wort, um, it was, it was really cool. Like success that we've had doing something very different. Um, again, with that, like, you know, fermenting with just fruit is something we're really like excited about. I think you get really different and unique, um, beers from those, the more Saison like I would say than like Lambic or Goose tasting, but, um, really interesting, awesome stuff. Interesting. So you're doing, you know, are you pressing juice then and, and fermenting fruit juice separately from beer? Or what are you, what are you talking about when you say fermenting fruit differently than beer? Oh, so like we'll brew a batch of wort and we'll shove 10 pounds of peaches in it and whatever's on the peaches will ferment the oh, beer. Using that culture off of the, okay. So it'll have a little, a, like a very different terroir than, you know, beer we make spontaneously yeah. or whatever. I think it's a really cool way to make unique tasting uh, beers. Cool. Well, uh, Harrison McCabe, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, if people want to learn more about Beachwood Blendery, where do they find you guys? Uh, BeachwoodBBQ.com. Uh, our website's pretty good. Our Instagram, uh, Beachwood Blendery. Um, those are the, the best places. You know, you ask questions. They can get, they'll go to me at some point. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, I'm uh, excited to try some of the beers that you brought for, uh, to share with me. And uh, it's a little early in the morning for us to be drinking, and I have no glasses around here. But we'll find some before we get out of here. GD Chillers is committed to cold. Download the Tavor app and get great craft beer delivered to your door. Brewing Pros, curate your own sample box at perfectpuree.com. And Clarion Lubricants is the expert that experts trust. If you've enjoyed this conversation and the other ones that we put out here on the podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button and become a subscriber. It's kind of like a Patreon, except we send you a magazine every two months. And we have a our annual Best in Beer issue coming up on November 1st. Uh, subscribers will get initially the first access, first crack at that through uh, our device apps on uh, ios and android and of course on november 1st we'll have a special edition of the podcast with our best in beer as we run through all of the winners and our logic and reader's choice and uh, and everything behind it so it's going to be a fun episode tune in for that and uh you know who knows who knows there might be some beachwood blendery beer uh, that shows up here and there and that thanks a lot harrison for joining me on the podcast cheers thanks Sam. cheers This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. 
Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.